welcome back along to this very special edition of the Free Thinker Podcast. As always, if you'd like to, uh, if you'd like to have your questions aired or have me read them out, or if you have any uh, comments that you'd like to see in print, you can always email me at tylervella at gmail.com, or you can visit my blog at www.logicaltheism.blogspot.com. That's www.logical-theism.blogspot.com. Now, I know it's been a little while since our last episode, and I'm not going to lie, I've just been really busy at work and life. Um, So I I hope you accept my sincere apologies, but we're back. And even though today we're going to be taking a break from our break from our discussion of the Kalam Cosmological Argument to talk to a dear friend of mine, Nicholas Brzezzi. Some of you might know Nicholas as the host of one of my favorite podcasts, The Skeptic's testament podcast which i've mentioned in my last episode uh, and which i've been a guest on before um and it is to one of the podcasts that i consider to be just an absolute premier example of a skeptical or an atheistic podcast that's out there so nicholas thank you for joining us on the show today thank you for having me sounds good uh we really appreciate having you here so first off how about you just tell us a little bit about your history, just kind of your faith journey growing up, um, your educational background, and then what you're doing now. Okay, um, I I grew up uh, uh, a Roman Catholic. I attended a Catholic primary school, a Catholic high school, and um, it was towards the end of of the part of of my Catholic high school that my mother actually began studying with Jehovah's Witnesses. Believe it or not. And uh, and so I began to study with them, eventually taking what they had to say very seriously. I think I was probably around 19 at the time. And um, I began to, to understand at, at that point when I started taking that study seriously that there were more ways to approach Bible study um, and particularly ways that seemed firmly based on evidence rather than, uh, I guess, you know, what would otherwise be a, a devotional approach to, to the, a historical approach. Right. Um, but either way, and much to the dismay of the church leaders at the time, I, uh, I entered a theological seminary. And, <laughs> uh, and of course, there, you know, that's... That's that's one of the, the the Christian sects, I guess, that is that has some facets, certainly of um, of what we might consider a cult, right? I I right. always try not to to firmly describe things like that, or even Mormonism as a cult, because I think cultism is a spectrum of behavior, and there are certainly, you know places where where Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses sit on that spectrum, but it's certainly nowhere uh, uh, up the end where we would find things like, you know, Jim Jones and and that type right. of, of thing. But at the same time, uh, as I entered Theological Seminary, and this was at a private Baptist church, actually, um, I began a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry. So it was by my third year exams my theology classes were deferred I, I ended up um, finishing my honours in chemistry the following year and uh, I then began my PhD in biochemistry and 
I've taken my credits and moved them into a Master of Divinity. And this is at the universe, Melbourne University of Divinity, which um, I'm part the way through at the moment. So um, that's a windbag's way of saying I have no credentials worth talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's more than most people could say. What what type no. of reaction do you... I mean, well, first of all, what what type of seminary is is Melbourne? I mean, where does it fall on, on, on kind of the Christian spectrum, would you say? Um, certainly certainly uh, liberal i i don't think that there are very many uh, there are there are some certainly very strict catholic seminaries for example there are some very strict uh, lutheran seminaries um calvinist seminaries but um the melbourne university melbourne university which is you know what uh, the like the governing institution of the melbourne university of divinity <coughs> is um is actually a, uh, um, a a secular institution, and and so I would say that uh, the the Melbourne University of Divinity is actually probably on the scale of conservative to liberal is much more closer to being liberal than anything I've met. In fact, you what they do is is they have a uh, a faculty, so you get to pick which faculty you want to study under. And um, I'm studying under the uh, United Faculty of Theology, which incorporates three different institutions. Um, they have a Catholic seminary, they have a uh, Jes Jesuit seminary, and they have a Presbyterian seminary. Um, and all of these uh, um, uh, scholars work together in, in presenting uh, the information about yeah, whatever subject they they happen to be teaching. Interesting. So you don't you don't get too many. Do you do you get a lot of cross-eyed looks when people find out that you're uh, an atheist? I'll or be how honest. Does, how, does, how does that reaction go? I don't think anybody knows. <laughs> <laughs> am, am I outing you right now on on? Uh, no, I don't think anybody <laughs> would be listening to this, or at least I hope not. But um, for for the most part, I think that uh, that it works out well for me because we tend to take more of a historical approach to the subject matter anyway so there are people right. who uh you know on the forums of of the university get very uh devotional you know they <coughs> they like to go on with long spiels about how uh jesus is is um the the messiah and died for our sins and so on and and believe it or not, they often get uh, not not warned or or um, or shut down for doing such things on on those public forums. But they're told that you know w we should be approaching this not from a, his, a, a devotional point of view, which you know they all often point out that there isn't anything wrong with. But you know when you begin to include this kind of stuff in your work, then um, it, it may become a problem so they do encourage uh, more of a a secular view of bible study i i would i would guess yeah rather than you know what i might have learned in a church right a little bit a little bit more of an academic <laughs> right uh, uh, presentation right yeah. that's right yeah and i mean they they don't 
they don't exclude the possibility um, for engaged interpretations. I mean, we, we just had to write an essay on engaged, a short paper on engaged interpretations of the Bible. You know, what uh, does this... We had to pick a passage and talk about what this scripture meant for us, right? And, and I don't think that... Um, you know, theologically speaking, it, it doesn't mean anything to me. But uh, at the same time, you know, there are certainly some uh, noteworthy proverbs at the very least um, for me to to be interested in. And that's the kind of thing that I can talk about. Right. Well, very interesting. So shifting gears just a little bit. Why the Skeptics Testament podcast? What, what was the impetus for that? What was your goal um, kind of your your reason for doing that podcast, a little bit of the history and where that podcast stands now. Uh, I think that the the ideals and to whatever degree principles exist in skepticism, where we try to follow a critical method in our approach to any claim, particularly pseudoscientific and religious claims, ties in very well with the historical critical approach. I think that there is a lot of common ground there between what most people define as skepti skepticism and the historical critical approach. Um, after all, what are we doing but thinking critically, right? And I don't think that many people quite realize that history can indeed be science, right? One of the, the ideal characteristics scientists want their hypotheses to have is predictive ability but it doesn't have to be predictions about the future science makes predictions about the past all the time right and if if you take for example the theory we posit to explain the extinction extinction of the dinosaurs a few lines of evidence suggest that it was a huge meteor which crashed the earth Firstly, you know, you, we notice uh, a layer of Earth which had a, a whole heap of dead dinosaurs. Okay, that's one dead giveaway <laughs> that they all that died at roughly the same time. More than what would be expected, unless, of course, you know, they died ra relatively rapid. Um, and then tests on that very same layer and the surrounding layers of the Earth found that the layer containing an abundance of dinosaur fossils had concentrated traces of, of uh, an element that we call iridium, right? And elements most abundant in asteroids and meteors. So the retrodiction, if you will, can be made. That is, if you look hard enough, you should find a huge crater that would have caused this, deposited this uh, iridium laid layer from an asteroid or a meteor. Um, um, and bingo. We find the Chicxulub crater, which we think caused, or at the very least contributed to, the the Cretaceous Paleogene um, extinction event. So, uh, I think that a as a history, you can make predictions about the past, and that was a prime example of a prediction about the past, and that has real predictive value, right? And so, therefore, history certainly in uh, more than one sense can be considered science even if it is more of a forensic science rather than you know a hard physical science like uh, chemistry or physics 
So just for our listeners who don't know, could you describe what the critical historical method is? Okay, so the just in brief. <laughs> in brief. <laughs> um, okay, so the historical critical method is is an approach to the scriptures, what we would consider um, uh, any text of antiquity, actually, um, whether it be the scriptures, whether it be Homer's Iliad, um, or even you know the Homeric poems. Um, and it would ap- approach it in in a few different ways. We try to, for example, when we when we're matching up um, uh, what the author has to say, we're often matching it up with the context of the time. Context seems to be key um, in the historical critical approach. So when we're looking at what Mark has to say about the destruction of the temple, we're looking at the time period around the time period that it was written in. What was going on with the Jews at the time? Um, what was going on in early Christianity at the time, right? And from there, we try to to determine then what the author probably meant by by what he's writing. Um, that's just an example. But the historical critical approach is is just a, a governing approach that has so many different um, uh, things uh, in it. So this is the the uh, you know. The, the blight of the form critics is to try to show us what form these texts were in, right? What what can we consider the the narrative critics to to be doing? And and of course they're trying to look at these as these stories that we find in the Bible as narrative and and see what benefit and what the author is trying to to deliver by writing the story in the way that he does. Um, and and these are all the um, approaches of higher criticism that we go through uh, as well as uh, lower criticism and um, things like textual criticism so um, we're looking here at the history of the manuscripts and and uh, I, I'm not sure that that explains very much but it's too difficult to be brief with uh, the historical <laughs> critical approach but essentially it's it's trying to set aside the religious differences that we might have and approach the study of the Bible from a historical perspective. So it's supposed to be through the unbiased eyes of the historian. Right. So we, we might have good examples of something like um, onomasology, um, the study of names, um, where we can have, we examine the names in a certain text, um, compare it to um, root words, root names during given time periods, and it helps us determine what time period that composition was more likely in than another right Right. so we we have good examples like that where we're going through basically just history and it helps us place those texts in a certain time certain context help us understand what that authorial intent might have been with certain um, words that might have changed in meaning over time if we can date it a certain time we know what type of usage it was more likely using right right Um, and and just back if I can get back to the question that you asked why the skeptics testament mm-hmm. um, so after demonstrating that history can indeed be science I would only like to point out that that um, there is a real uh, widespread biblical illiteracy 
that I noticed among my own people, among agnostics and atheists. They, th that is to say that most of the people who are talking about the Bible either have too far of, of a, a critical view of it, right? Either they're overly skeptic to the point where they even deny the obvious uh, <laughs> that, well, what some would consider obvious um, <laughs> in that, you know, Jesus never existed. Um, and then there are others who are just blatantly wrong. Uh, we, we had recently on, on our Facebook page, somebody post up um, a criticism about Jesus's name, right? You, you know, his name wasn't really Jesus Christ, right? That was, right. that was the criticism. And this is just for me, the strange criticism that comes from, from our community, right? Or when, uh, when Jesus and his apostles are walking down from Galilee and it says it took them three days or whatever. And, and somebody says, well, it wouldn't have taken them three days to to walk this distance ah so they're wrong this is just criticism for the sake of criticism it's not uh um it's not positive in any way it doesn't tell us anything about the text and there is a real biblical illiteracy that i'm worried about so the skeptics testament podcast was spawned to try to to try to educate mostly my group of people about the bible to try to 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 get the rid of those the dull views you know and we hear it all the time on the facebook page oh it's a uh, it's uh, a bunch of stories written by um uh, spear chucking inbreds and and just ridiculous criticisms like that when in fact when you you do study these books say the gospels for example you do find that these were actually very talented writers their works survived for a lengthy period of time for a good reason because they're good <laughs> they they were good at what they did and they they told a good story and they they were very talented at and they had particularly the skills to write effectively um, and so, no, I don't think I don't agree that that these people were idiots, right? And and that's just the strange criticism that I see all over the place. Um, and so, this is trying to rectify some of that. Yeah, I remember one of your one of your podcasts. You took um, quite strong exception to those who said you know Revelation was basically written by someone on an acid trip. Right. Um, right. Or, or someone completely, completely. Uh, delusional under the influence something um, and, and basically took them to task saying no this is actually one of the most beautifully poetic uh, image Old Testament image driven um, texts in the New Testament um, which I thought was a really really interesting episode um, right. yeah I, I, I think for, for anyone listening who's who's been on the Facebook page they've, they've seen um, plenty of those conversations where we see uh, that kind of anti-intellectualism that, that almost almost anti-expert uh, mentality kind of playing out across the board on both sides I mean it happens on both sides yeah I, I do I experience it from Christians a lot we um there's actually a lady at work who is a um, she is a born-again Christian and, um, and is there any other kind <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we were talking, and when she found out that you know um, 
I'm doing a Master of Divinity, she was like, you biblical scholars. And I thought, what an odd reaction. You know, that's, that is, she says that, she says it openly, she doesn't like them. Um, but I, I think to myself, you know, this is the kind of anti-intellectualism that we're dealing with, that, that oh, I'm sorry, I think for a living. That's, uh, <laughs> that's got to be a bad thing. That is that is absolutely terrible. Mm. It's just I don't know how you sleep at night. <laughs> yeah, I think I think for me one of my quote unquote favorite ones is the is the is the pie example from the Old Testament where it yeah. says this basin was a circular but it was basically three times around. And the big the big criticism is that uh, the Bible says that pie is exactly three and so therefore it's absolutely wrong. I mean it just completely runs roughshod over just normal usage of language. Right. And and for the for the most part and here's what i find so terrible because you'll you'll find that type of thing in in books by christopher hitchens sam harris richard dawkins is that and this is what annoys me the most is that they have such a gigantic platform to spread this and uh, i mean i i took to task particularly um a skeptical podcast that i i used to listen to um, and they're a bunch of good guys, and, and they dealt with it appropriately. But they were jokingly saying that Revelation was written by a guy on an acid trip. And they said, you know, they said he's, they agreed that I was right and that they may not be correct in that. Um, but they said that they were saying it in a jovial manner. They were kidding around. But you might be kidding around, but this is how those types of things spread throughout our communities right? right people think that you're kidding around but they also think that there is a grain of truth to what you're saying e- even if it right. is only a grain and i do find that that you know that is quite a common uh, misconception in in the skeptics community that you know revelation had to be written on an acid trip when there is just nothing could be further from the truth and it's the platform that people have that allows them to spread this throughout our community which which makes it pervasive and and that's the thing that i find extremely annoying is that platform that they have yeah i I think also one of the 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 biggest frustrations for me when i get into these conversations um is almost the uh, i i use i use this uh, logical fallacy the most because it seems the most prevalent is almost the, the question begging nature of these types of comments where like you said um, people might think you're kidding but there's a grain of truth well what seems apparent to me is that when people there's there's so often in this type of debate so much mockery that happens for right. what you actually think they're saying that when you're only kidding it's almost indistinguishable of from when you're only kidding to when you're actually mocking what you think they're saying. Right. Um, that those things go hand in hand to where when you're mocking, it's just you're not even actually making an argument why it's false. You're just saying, look how stupid it is. Right. Um, it, especially when this comes. And one of the frustrating things is that it comes from this community. You know, again, this isn't applying to you because you are clearly a person delving into the study. But this comes from this community of people who says they cherish reason and study and academics so much, but so often their criticism is just completely vacuous, entirely vapid. Uh, just these, just these terrible examples. So uh, I know for me, not to completely throw Richard Dawkins under the bus or anything, but when I read the God Delusion, uh, I often just I went away thinking, yeah, I mean, if 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 that's the conception of God you're going to be going with, I would make the same criticism problem is that's not what christians mean 
uh, or, or that's not what Christians say, that's not what they argue. And then a lot of times when you look at their sources, I know a lot has been made, but he'll he'll use a source uh, as, as his quote-unquote expert on the Bible, and you look it up and it's a professor of German or something along those right. lines. Uh, and so it's just, you know, you have this huge platform and you're spreading this almost mis almost misinformation if it, if it wasn't so I, I think it's unintentional I don't want to say it's intentional uh, but you have this huge pat platform for basically spreading this and then it catches on through internet bloggers just like it does in theism I mean I have the same problem on my side of the aisle so to speak uh, but it's it, it's it's so frustrating to, to come from this community that says they that that's the exact thing that they cherish um, which makes it a little a little difficult Right, it's it's essentially one big straw man, um, and of course, you know, why else build a straw man other than it's easy to knock down? Um, <laughs> and so, you know, sometimes I see a criticism of of Christianity, and I think to myself, well, what are you really criticizing here? Is this okay? You're probably, you know, you can probably find somebody who will adhere to to that particular uh, framework of Christianity that you're dealing with, right? Um, but to to act as though that is the only framework of Christianity, that there aren't any that, that can account for the problems that, that you're posing, is, I think to myself, is, is kind of naive. And... Um, and I think that we as atheists and skeptics can do a much better job of, of dealing with the Christian community than we currently do. Because, yeah, at the moment, I, I agree, all I see is a lot of mockery. Um, and uh, I think that uh, that's a, an intellectually lazy position to to take. Right. And and I, th I think this, this came up a little bit on, on one of the discussions in in the Facebook group is, is basically um, I was talking about the distinction between Christianity and Christendom. Um, oh, the right. difference between the actual teachings of, of Christianity, of Jesus, and, and kind of what Christianity has become. Specifically, we usually have in mind, right, Western, mm -hmm. late mo or modern to late modern, almost American type of Christianity that, that's now been imported to other areas of the world and what's so often confused and and what that which is why sometimes I have sympathy for the mocking I'm not gonna lie I sometimes I see the humor and I, I, I sometimes sympathize it but it's because I have some of those same criticisms of what Christianity has become right not because oh look how stupid Christianity is when really that should be kind of placed towards well look how strange Christendom has become right um, and and I think uh, kind of transitioning into the next question just pointing out that I think um, I, I don't want you know my listeners or, or uh, f from your your show or her listening or anything like that to get the idea that I'm saying oh it's you know this is completely uh, an atheistic problem. I don't think either of us are saying that. And one of my biggest pet peeves is that I actually see so many Christians actually feed into this or or, or even start it um, by our almost incessant need to proof text things, um, kind of what I call the, the fortune cookie Bible where everything comes from one single verse taken out of its historical context taken out of its literary context taken out of pretty much any context um, so that, that that common cliche is good that a, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text right. Right? We, we as Christians have kind of set up that, that ethos that proof texting is okay 
and that's how we should read the Bible. So why are we surprised when atheists proof text to kind of throw it back in our faces? I think we really, really lead into that because that's how a lot of Christians read the Bible as well. Right. Um, so I take that problem on us. You, you can keep working on the atheists, and I'll keep working on the Christians. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. <laughs> um, okay, so how about we'll switch gears a little bit. We've kind of uh, talked about anti-intellectualism. This is a topic uh, we, we might start gearing away from where you and I agree so much and start getting into a little bit more disagreement. Atheistic fundamentalism right. and scientism, do they exist? Do you think those are adequate terms? Uh here's a tough one it's an interesting question because here we have a group of people who who i think i might agree with almost all else except on what they have to say regarding the bible and even probably their stance on philosophy and um and you know we're talking about people like sam harris pz myers um formerly christopher hitchens jerry coyne dawkins so on right this this is a group that have a fundamental approach that being scientific and science is sufficient to deal with religious claims to a god now if you know and Dawkins is explicit about this in the god delusion right and I think that he has a in some small print a clause if you will that where on his sliding scale of atheism and I think it's more accurately describes agnosticism to atheism he's he's a number six that is he's not a hundred percent certain there is no god but because of his understanding of science he's very close to that um now i don't agree with that position which has led some to accuse me of being an accommodationist but uh now and now not without your help of course i find their approach and I don't mean this disrespectfully, to the Bible and philosophy, pretty naive. Um, now, I've been studying the Bible formally for a while now, so I feel that I'm in a position to comment. But regarding philosophy, well, this is an intellectual arena I'm only recently entering. And this is something you've pulled me up on publicly, in fact. And it's, you know, my <laughs> lack of depth in this particular arena. But I, I've come to realize that those new atheists, so to speak, adopt an indefensible indefensible position and this is something which I hope not to be caught in so um, no one is arguing that, that science can't be used to reject religious claims surrounding you know things like the Shroud of Turin or more recently Jesus's family tomb or, or the rusty nails right that was a good one right. um, found uh, which were claimed to be the actual nails that nailed Jesus to the cross but those are far and away claims which have indeed been dealt with using science, empirical evidence. So no one is arguing that. But, and here is, is the biggest mistake, I think, in, um, in McAfee's thesis. He's the, the gentleman that you're writing a book with, um, the author of Disproving Christianity is that disproving those particular claims doesn't disprove religion or Christianity, right? Or even that version of Christianity. A and here is why it is, in fact, due to a concept I think you and I have been discussing, discussing privately, but it's how those who adopt science as the be-all and end-all can defend against the claim 
you know that in in your own words you called it last thursdayism right um right. now i i agree that there's absolutely nothing a scientist can say to debunk or or disprove that claim and I think that you would agree that it's it's a strange claim, right? It is, and it creates all sorts of theological problems. But the point is, if we follow the implications to its logical conclusion, we need more than just science to rationalize the world we see. And, and so I think in the past, I see Dawkins and others make the same mistake I did. They overestimate the reach of science in its use to provide um, epistemological boundaries. And, and here is where science ends. It cannot provide a solution one way or the other for this problem. In order for science to work, it has to take for granted the existence of a physical world, of the universe, right? Which it cannot itself prove. Right. So, so this has been my most recent position change with no thanks to you, but... <laughs> You're welcome. Yes. <laughs> but, but there is... You know, those I think who who overreach the the uh, overestimate the reach of science. I think they're the fundamentalists of our of our um, group of people. They're the ones who would you know. I, I think that this is the old Protestant mantra: the Bible first, right? And right. And so you, you know, these are the guys who who are science first and science last, and there isn't anything else, right? right. And and I don't think that that is, firstly, um, well, I don't think it's anti-intellectual in the skeptical community. I think there's a lot of anti-intellectualism about the Bible in the skeptical community, but not not regarding science and the use of science in the skeptical community. But I think that. Um, yeah, this 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 Christendom versus Christianity, you know, conflating Christian tradition with Christian teaching. I think that this is the where where this becomes an important point to distinguish because now we have um, a, a group of people who would try to to debunk, so to speak, and I know this is I hate using that word because it's so overused, but they would try to debunk Christian tradition and Christian teaching using these boundaries of of science and I think that they were just absolutely overreaching um, and and you know whether they like it or not what they really ought to be doing is taking some classes in philosophy and trying to rationalize the world we see um, where, where philosophy can guide our science, and it should, and I think that it does. People probably just don't realize it. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think um, I think kind of going along along those lines, there, there's a similar fear in that kind of um, scientistic, um, fundamentalist side of it, where they think, well, if if we if we give an inch, they're going to take a mile. Um, and it's the same type of mentality, I think, for a lot of fundamentalist Christians, where if they think, okay, well, if I give up, say, say my literal interpretation of Genesis 1, what is that going to do to the rest of my interpretation of the Bible? If basically, if I give up what I've said is inerrant, does that mean I have to give up inerrancy over everything? Right. Um, and, I, and I think we kind of have, I, I see that as almost a root cause behind the scientism that, well, if I give up that science doesn't really answer all the questions, 
then that leaves open the floodgates for people coming in saying, well, it doesn't really answer any questions, which is just the extreme in the opposite direction, which is right. almost as equally, uh, as equally absurd, almost, I want to say. Um, and, and I think that there's some of that concern that's, that's going on. Um, I, I also think that some of the concern going on is the, and we've talked about this before, is the, if, if I can't, you know, see it, touch it, taste it, measure it, basically anything empirical, then I can't know it. Um, and, and I think where, where you, uh, you could correct me if I'm, if I'm mis, mishearing you, you, you correctly, um, where you're, you're kind of coming and saying, well, no, there, there is some, some boundaries, some checks and balance in philosophy that kind of guide our, kind of guide our scientific endeavors. So I, I know that a lot of the discussions we get into, um, I'm, I'm constantly accused of, well, kind of that Krausian, uh, Hawken, uh, philosophy is dead, science is all there is type thing, mm-hmm. and just because you can philosophize it, you're magically uh, pulling it out of thin air um, type of objection, when basically all I want to say is, well, no, I mean, I, I'm not saying that just because it's it's philosophically coherent that it's a necessary existent in, in reality, but that it kind of gives us those boundaries. So uh, so if I'm, if I'm looking at a philosophical um System, say we're talking about string theory or or, or uh, Big Bang, we're talking about infinities and all that kind of thing. I'm not saying uh, anything concrete about what is. I'm just saying, well, when we reflect on, we reflect on certain things, certain ideas contain contradictions, which tell me that if your science leads to that, something has probably gone wrong in your science. If if your science is leading to something that is philosophically contradictory, something's probably gone amiss. Yeah, and I, I can't necessarily say that that's incorrect. I think I would agree with the majority of that. That the the point is is that there is certainly all you needed to do anyway was provide one example that science can't deal with, right? That's all you needed right. to do, right? And that would show that science uh, it cannot be the answer to everything. That we need more than just science, and here is where I think philosophy comes in. And people do that with last Thursdayism. I think that that's a a an absurd concept. But all you needed to do was provide one example that science can't deal with. And you know, as I mentioned, we have to take the existence of the universe for granted. Um, it's something that we cannot prove, so we have to take it for granted for science to continue. Um, but here, here we get to, uh, yeah, where I think people are overreaching the ability of science, and and when there is something, see, it, for me, if if you take mathematics to be pure logic, which I do, then you you will also realize that there are sets of of pure logic out there that are internally consistent, but do not match up with reality. So if what you're saying is, okay, yes, it, it can be philosophically sound in, in, its, in its logic and logically consistent, but it may not match up r- with reality, right? This is something that we can know, uh, we can or we cannot know, right? It, it's, right. It's, uh, so for example, um, and I, I have uh, thrashed this example so many times, but I really like it because it really provides the 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 uh, meat of what I'm talking about is that the subatomic particles that physicists were predicting 
in the 70s they were predicting it using mathematics and and literally literally these things fell out of the math right we didn't know that they existed we had never observed them but the logic said that they were there the logic said that yes if you smash protons at a certain speed um, with a certain energy then you'll be able to generate these particles you should be able to and of course this only happened once we were uh, we had the capabilities of building uh, a large enough particle collider that was able to to reach these energies and when they were there was a plethora of of subatomic particles that physicists had predicted and that they were discovering however there's also a set of of um uh, mathematics that describes the ether right and it's logically coherent but we now know after uh, a lot of scientific endeavors that there is no such thing as the ether right that's something that is logically coherent sure but it doesn't match up with reality and um and that's why i think that that philosophy plays a very important role in in guiding our scientific endeavors right which is basically the endeavor of the philosophy of science which is this massive burgeoning field i mean it's becoming so specific that you're actually getting philosophy of biology philosophy of physics i mean it's actually branching out because of these things Um, i i know this is one area that you and i disagree with but it's it's kind of interesting hearing your example of the ether Um, this is actually a common criticism of something like string theory where we can say well the mathematics of you know 11 dimensions bear out something like uh, M theory or, or a multiverse or bubble universes or whatever it is but the main criticism is well uh, it, that doesn't just because the mathematics is internally consistent and we can you know add all these dimensions to make the math balance basically to make it consistent doesn't mean that that's an actual picture of reality right so that, that's a kind of a common criticism that we're that we're experiencing for people like Lee Smolin and others right it isn't right if that's if that's your approach then yes i agree it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to match up with reality but here is the next part of of the philosophy that will guide this endeavor is it testable right can we build something to test these predictions and and that's where the science kick that's where science kicks in where sorry, we're saying well you this, cut this, out there what was the, that the philosophy is is kind of guides that science because the honestly there is going to be some philosophical underpinnings about how you would test, how you would even possibly test uh, this kind of, um, I don't want to say other dimension because that's not necessarily even what we mean by multiverse, but these, these other bubble universes, some of that is going to be guided by that philosophy of, of physics and cosmology, but that's also where the science is going to kick in, where we're going to be coming up with testable, discernible ways. Right, right. And uh, by the way, did you get a chance to listen to that interview by Michel Kaku? I did, I did. It was very interesting. Yeah. Very, so very interesting. So he does provide some examples there of how this theory is testable. Now, the, there is, I think, a, a sub-difference between what is testable and what is practically testable, right? So, <laughs> so what he's asking for at the moment isn't really practical. It isn't doable in a practical sense I mean um, and so he does provide examples where it is testable but we currently don't have the ability to test it so 
where you know this is the beginning of a long endeavor i think that is just getting more and more complex i at, at this point the math has lost me i i can't keep up with it i'm not quite sure what um uh i'm not quite sure what the advances are that are being made I in this theory because i i can't do the math in my head anymore it doesn't uh quite match up i'm i'm don't have time to keep uh keeping abreast of of this this new uh theory and its development so well, well if, it, if it helps you feel any better, I think uh, it was either Smolin or, or, or White or one of them that came out and basically said, not only you know, do we not have the, the equation that can fit on a napkin, uh, but we're not even sure we know what type of math should be used to describe it. So right. <laughs> if you're not keeping up with the math that we do know, don't feel bad because there's probably math that we don't know that would describe it. So. That actually makes me feel better. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, get, you know, getting back to to this uh, anti-intellectualism in the skeptical community I do think it is rampant when it comes to the Bible that uh, people don't want to know that something in the Bible might actually be true and they make the same gross generalizations that you know if there is proper historical detail in the Bible the whole thing must be historically historically accurate or they or the other um, end of the spectrum is if there is one historical detail that isn't correct in the Bible then the entire thing is historically inaccurate and untrustworthy um, right. and I just think that this is astounding we would not apply that same logic or illogic to any <laughs> other uh, you know piece of, of technical writing ever why would why do we do it here because i i can't i can't think of any other way other than there are people with axe to grind and that's right. all they're doing is just axe grinding right and and i think going going along with that also kind of steering it back towards the philosophy we see it on both sides also um and not just in in well either all the bible is has to be true or all of it has to be false or or anything like that we we also see um, just coming to my mind, like the example of um, Sam Harris's moral landscape. Well, for me, I think as a as a moral theory, it completely fails. But that doesn't mean that I don't think science can't say anything about morality. I just don't think that science is a proper basis for a moral theory. But it doesn't mean that science can't describe what human what leads to human flourishing, what types of activities, what takes away from it even though I don't necessarily think that human flourishing is a proper basis for a moral theory. But we have a bunch of people that think, well, either, you know, either science can completely account for everything that has to do with morality, or on the other side, you have people that say, oh, well, science can tell us absolutely nothing about morality whatsoever. Um, right. So we, we kind of get this, this almost fundamentalism on either side, either it's all right or it's all wrong, also in, in the philosophical side of this type of science-religion uh, debate as well. Well, now, for what it's worth, I don't actually agree with with Harris on on any of that, and I don't, and I think that that's the scientism that you're talking about, right? It is. Yes, it is. and and I, I think that um, you know s our discussions have helped me realize that that no, no, that's not the appropriate way to be using the scientific method, right? It, like you said, it can be used to to show us. Um, to show us, you know, the phenomena of of morality and some things in it, but 
as a theoretical framework, no. I think that this is where philosophy is important. For me, I'm I'm a consequentialist. I um, believe that empathy and the evolution of of being able to empathize plays a a, a great deal um, in our um, in our behavior, in our morals, and in our ethics. I th- I don't think that there is any such thing as objective morals. Um, I do think that all morals are subjective, but that consequence consequences based on this ability to empathize play a big role in society and and how we set up these our, our moral landscape so to speak um and part of the evidence that i use to to support this idea is that when we begin to muck with with the areas of the brain that uh that we associate with empathy or um consideration for other people people start to do strange things this is where parts of the brain have have found to be damaged in people like um in serial killers right they who who will openly admit and don't seem to be able to empathize they don't seem to be able to take into account other people's feelings um and and so i think that when you know this is a, a prime example of where empathy and the evolution of empathy has become important in how we um, relate to one another and how we interact with one another. As I said, I'm a consequentialist. I don't do things that are evil to other people uh, or that that would harm another person because I realize the consequences of that harm is bad. And the reason why I know it's it's not a good thing, it's bad, is because if that were to happen to me, and here's where I'm empathizing, it would be bad for me. So if I realize that something can be bad for me or, or be um, insufficient for me to get whatever it is I need to get done, then I can also realize that the same applies to other people. And, and especially consequences. This is what separates us from the majority of of the animal kingdom is that humans are are very special when it comes to consequences we're able to follow chains of consequences so a lion might might uh you know herd a a pack of 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 uh bison up against a cliff because they realize that if they do that enough eventually one of them's going to get knocked off and they've got an easy meal right um all they have to do is go down and get get it that's one step in the consequence chain right they don't have the ability as we humans do to say oh okay well if i get this degree i can get a job if i get a job i can um earn earn money if i earn money i can pay for bills and well most of my money goes on bills um (laughs) but i can you know get some some pleasure out of this i can buy my new computer i can go on a holiday you know we're able to have these chains of consequences that animals don't seem capable of of doing and i think that this is very important in understanding how we relate to one another and how um empathy plays a role in our moral landscape again so to speak right yeah i i i 
as much as I as much as I want to jump in and, and, and discuss that, that would be a whole different episode uh, talking about. <laughs> yeah, feel, feel, feel <laughs> talking about more. We'll we'll leave it we'll leave it at there uh, with my comment that I that I agree with some, disagree with most. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it at that. I'm um, sorry. Feel no, that's 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 fine. It's 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 good fodder for another for another episode. <laughs> okay. No, no. Okay. We we should. I I know we're both on limited times, and that would that would quadruple the the time of this episode. <laughs> you bet. You bet. I shouldn't. Uh, I apologize because I feel no, bad no, now. No. I have I haven't given you enough time for a right of reply. Oh no no no! It's 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 fine. My my reply would probably be uh, long and not even as brief as yours. So, <laughs> um, just a last few questions for you. What do sure. you see the 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 direction the the future direction of the Christian and, and atheistic debate or the theistic and atheist and atheistic debate um, and what type of impact would you like to have on that future? Um, was it Ronald Reagan who said I'll take your fir- your last question first? Um, <laughs> I, I, the impact that I would like to have would certainly be to advance the skeptics' knowledge of the Bible to to help them understand that there is a more or less objective way of studying the scriptures that that we needn't refer to it as oh you know a bronze age myth which is what the ent- even though it was written over the space of uh, three or four ages the entire thing gets branded as a bronze age myth and I think to myself that's just completely um, um, wrong. Uh, wrong yeah it's just it's just <laughs> utterly incorrect you you cannot be further from the truth and you know it, it's like the do you know i found this out the other day that there is this strange belief that not even paul existed and i've heard that and robert price is one of the proponents of that and uh, here we're dealing with you know some some skepticism dials that have been notched up to 11 and have broken off so we've got now this this point where there are people in my community who have a huge platform to spread this type of and by the way carrier and price are are two of the main um uh gentlemen who who do who do people in our community listen to and and seek their advice on and you know these particular issues um and so i i first before i think that christians should be engaging in christian uh, atheists should be engaging in debates with christians rather i think first they need to come to a much more accurate study of the bible a much more accurate understanding of scripture and what it is and and how it came about even early christianity i mean that wouldn't hurt when so yeah so you know the atheist christian debate i would hope can be much more civil and much more academic than what it currently is if i can only get in there first and talk about you know and teach uh, my fellow agnostic atheists, these kinds of things that that I learn on a daily basis about the Bible, um, and you know, I know most people who who are Christians might think that I'm just another atheist with an axe to grind, 
but you know what can i do other than reassure them that no i'm not i actually love the bible i really do i read it every single day um and i study it every single day there's not a day that goes by where i don't think about something that is in there or, or i don't reflect on something that is in there even if it's you know uh for an essay that i have to write i mean this is something that is that i'm very passionate about and that's why i'm very passionate about teaching my fellow com members of of my community about the types of things that i'm learning that interest me and hopefully that type of enthusiasm can uh, be caught by them and and they pass on that enthusiasm and so on so i would hope before there is any more christian atheist dialogue that atheists would become uh, a much more um, uh, have a, a much better understanding of what the Bible is and isn't right and I, I right. guess I would hope the same for the Christian but then then again I mean I know that our Facebook page isn't a, a very um, a, a good population to, to go by because we have some pretty intelligent Christians on there um, yourself included but we don't well, have, <laughs> we don't have uh, that you know that that proselytizing type of Christian who is only there to convert people to Christianity and not there to try to broaden their horizons. So, um, so yeah, we you know we found a pretty decent group that is able to to have. Although there are some new new people on there, and and I always find new people strange, <laughs> but these people <laughs> are even stranger. But, the, um, the, the outsiders we've got to we've got to keep an eye on them right yes that's right we do there's there's, <laughs> there's the there's the in group and the out group in the christian atheist debates there is <laughs> and uh yes and i think that that is uh i think that that is very very important that we do keep an eye on that um <laughs> yeah it, it's also it's also kind of challenging just in, in some of these ongoing long discussions that you know uh, a group of 15 20 of us might have already covered a topic and then someone else basically comes in and just rehashes something we've already talked about maybe a year and a half ago that we've we've already kind of worked through and settled. Yeah, and kind of enlivens that discussion. And I, re I actually um, uh, have recently been been um, I've got a folder for you and me, and uh, I've recent recently been copying and pasting our responses in that in that folder, so that when it does come up again in the future. I've got a, a cut and paste method of reply. <laughs> uh, well, that's that's very efficient of you. Yes, <laughs> I'm all about efficiency. Uh, so what about what? So that's that's kind of where you like. What do you? Maybe let's let's ratchet our skeptical dials up a little bit because, mm. uh, as, as many people from my show know, that I am uh, a pretty strong skeptic myself, even though I'm a Christian. Um, what do you actually think the future of the discussion is going to look like? Messy. <laughs> <laughs> If I had to use one word, it's going to be utterly messy. Um, there are some. I mean, do, if, if do, I don't know if you remember the Intelligence Squared debate between uh, Stephen Fry, Christopher Hitchens, and uh, two people from the Catholic Church. I and vaguely remember it. I think the question was: Is religion a force for good in the world? Yes. Yes. Right, and and I think that what they actually meant to be asking was, is Catholicism a force for good in the world? Because that's what Fry and Hitchens were arguing against, right? 
and right. and so I think that, and you know that to me that was a pretty messy debate. Even though uh, you know, if you would ask me, I would say no. Hitchens and Fry um, certainly won that debate. I just think that it was it was poorly phrased. It wasn't um, a good place to start because, um, and it's the same problem I have with uh, McCarthy's book disproving Christianity but how how can you disprove Christianity right that that to me sounds like uh, um, an odd and an illogical um, premise that you can disprove something that is just so much more complicated and complex than one set of Christian beliefs that everybody follows right, right. so uh, I think that you know, it's it's going to be messy and it's going to stay messy because there are going to be people who are arguing. There are you know there are people who argue with you on the Facebook page, who accuse you of things that other Christians are doing, right, or believe <laughs> that I know you don't believe, right? right? And I think to myself, okay, well, this is a pretty naive view of what Christianity is if you think that all Christians hold this particular premise about their belief um, then you obviously haven't studied very much about Christianity and probably shouldn't be in a debate about it so so I think that it's just going to be messy and get messier because uh, uh, people are unwilling to see that Christianity is not one thing it isn't one thing that you can disprove right it's a complex system of things that is 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 to a point changing but um and does change um but you know it, it certainly isn't a self-correcting process that i would say science has but it does have the ability to to self-correct um, you know, and, and when I say that, I mean mostly the academic side of it, especially in the scholarly community. Um, and so, uh, you know, until people begin to realize, you know, it's it's probably much more skeptical to ask what that Christian believes in the first place before you just assume. Um, then the debate is going to just get messier. Yeah, I, I think leading into my final question for you. Um one of kind of going into that one of my biggest challenges um, with with my Christian belief really is just the diversity of of beliefs the diversity of positions um, so that it's almost impossible to kind of pin the tail on the donkey of what even Christianity right. is um, and, and what it's become so we can talk about you know I, I usually try to think of it as the, the fundamental you know uh, the fundamental worldview, um, the the James Sire type of seven questions that a worldview I think all Christians tend to share, plus some really really just basic basic Orthodox beliefs. I kind of tie it down to that. If you can disprove quote unquote something like that, then you might go kind of uh, a step in disproving Christianity. One of the problems that I have, and I and I kind of feel that that discontinuity within myself is the well. Um, is Christianity even falsifiable because it's so diverse? Um, so you know, when it, it's kind of like that carpet. If you if you pin if you pin down one bump, it's just going to pop up somewhere right. else. So so if you you know you pin down something on my belief, well, you might have pinned down that one specific strand, but here are these other hundred areas where it just has nothing to do with that whatsoever, and you haven't addressed it um, at all. So does does that make it unfalsifiable? 
All right, uh, I, I would have to which, say yes. Which for me is actually one of my, my biggest challenges. Um, it's not a challenge in the sense that it challenges my Christian belief that it's true or false, but it definitely challenges the way that I try to um, view, encapsulate, describe my Christian faith, uh, because I want to make it consistent, at least for myself, that my understanding of Christianity can be falsifiable. Um, I, I don't know if I ever want to get to a place where I have a, a belief or a position that is just, it, it's impossible to falsify um, or, or impossible to verify. We don't really want to go on either extreme. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that's that's one of the, my one of my own personal challenges. Uh, we've talked about kind of what's that one argument from the other side that is your biggest challenge for me. And, you know, I've said the, the, ex the existential problem of evil. Yep. So my final question for you, and I, I've asked you this before, uh, but just for all the listeners, is what would make you become more skeptical of naturalism than of theism? Um, I think people like you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, my my most recent major positional change was was from atheist to agnostic because I think that that is a de I think atheism proper atheism is an indefensible position so I, I describe myself as an agnostic but a functional atheist which is precisely what number six on the Dawkins scale is right it's uh, a, a, a belief that you don't know 100% certain that God doesn't exist but you're going to continue to live your life as though he doesn't um, and so that was one position change that I've had more recently the next one was um, was yeah whether or not science can be used as an epistemology right as uh, to provide a basis for how we know what we know right um, right and yeah that's been my second most recent position change in that um, I think that we need more than science uh, as we spoke about uh, only 30 minutes ago but uh, but I think that yeah this this has been very a very healthy friendship so far for me anyway that um, that it's helped me see that there is certainly uh, there's certainly a very um, intellectual kind of Christian out there and they're the type of people that I love to have discussions with they're the type of people who I would invite into my home and, and have a meal with because they're the type of people that um, that don't do what many Christians are accused of doing and just have a blind faith right they, they right. understand what Hebrews 11.1 1 meant when it says um, I have you know, faith of the things that we we don't see, and uh, an assurance of the things hoped for. So uh, that's the kind of of thing that I think is is healthy for me as a person, um, and that's the kind of thing that is is helping me see that uh, is helping me be more skeptical of my naturalism. Because even before people like you came along, I was still never of the opinion that there is no spiritual world, that there is no, um, uh, what, what we would, you know, call whatever it is, ghosts or God or miracle abilities. Um, I would never say that those things are impossible and, and have never happened. Um, I'm not, I am not a metaphysical naturalist. 
um, I'm more of a methodological naturalist. So there, I, I think, is where I can turn up my skeptical dial on naturalism to say, well, no, I, I don't agree with coin and, and carrier. Um, I don't think that the only possible uh, um, reality is naturalism and that there is no supernaturalism um, out there although I've never found any evidence for any, but this is a different topic. <laughs> that is a different topic. Well, Nicholas, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate uh, I really appreciate you coming by. I really appreciate your time, and thank you for your patience in having me on, and thank you for the great questions. I, I really yeah. enjoyed this. Uh, it was very enjoyable. And for our listeners, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, stay tuned soon for another edition. We'll be back uh, exploring more of the Kalam cosmological argument, talking about some of the scientific reasons to accept premise two, that the universe did have a beginning. Uh, if you'd like to check us out, again, the blog is www.logicaltheism.blogspot.com. That's www.logical-theism.blogspot.com. Or you can email me at tylervella at gmail.com. That's T-Y-L-E-R. V-E-L-A at gmail.com. Thanks again for joining us, and I hope you have a great morning, afternoon, evening, weekend, whenever it is you're listening to us. Thanks again, and come back again soon. Bye, everybody.